Welcome to Lead On Purpose. I'm James Lachlan, former seven-time world champion musician and now executive coach to global leaders and high performers. In every episode, I bring you an inspiring leader or expert to help you lead your life and business on purpose. Thanks for taking the time to connect today and investing in yourself. Enjoy the show. Would you like to connect personally with some of my podcast guests? They are arguably some of the most influential leaders and high performers on the planet. Each month, members of my HPC, the High Performers Club, get to connect with a leadership titan in an intimate Q&A. They also get access to powerful high-performance leadership coaching and monthly masterminds. There's only 20 seats at the leadership table. You can apply today by going to www.jjlachlan.com forward slash HPC. COVID has thrown so many challenges our way. If you're leading a team or you own a business, you will know that retaining staff is incredibly challenging. The rise of the agile leader, Can You Make the Shift, is a new book written by Chuck Muller. It's a guide for the aspiring mid and seasoned C-suite leader and executive that introduces a new leadership paradigm and a roadmap of what makes a great leader and what organizations must do to develop great leaders. I'm so excited to welcome Chuck Muller to the show. Chuck, a massive welcome to the Lead on Purpose podcast. James, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and no, I'm really glad to connect with you. I know you're over in Boston there, so for you to make the time to connect and share your message, your really important message for leaders out there, it's just massively appreciated. And uh, for the leader that's listening right now, uh, Chuck is an incredible author. He's got a book out, The Rise of the Agile Leader, and there's no time like the present to talk about the issues that all of us leaders are experiencing uh, post-COVID, and some people are still kind of mid-COVID. So, Chuck, please tell me, before we get into what the book's about and the changes that that can help in a leadership's, uh, leader's mindset, what got you into this journey of leadership and influencing leaders? No, great question, James, and thank you for, for mentioning the book. It was definitely a, a passion to get sort of my message out there. Um, for me personally, um, I, I started and, and my background is in business. So I've been in management consulting most of my career. And like a lot of people, uh, I, not only did I advance in, in my career, but I had my trials and tribulations, uh, especially when I got into management, when I went from a high performing individual contributor to starting to manage teams, then start managing practices, starting building businesses. And I remember uh, that one conversation I had in 1999 where my CEO and mentor pulled me out over to the side and said, uh, Chuck, you ever had a, a 360 assessment? And of course, I was foolish enough to ask why he's asking. And of course, the, the reason was because he, he felt I needed some feedback, which I did. Um, so you know, I ended up getting some um, good feedback, but some pretty difficult feedback. And of course, my mature reaction at the time is, well, screw all these people because look at my great results. And of course, I was half kidding. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, and he laughed and said, look, you know, you know, you're be successful. You're smart. You're, you're hardworking. Um, you get results. You care about people. Uh, you're passionate. Um, you're strategic and all great qualities. But if you really want to get to the next level in your career, if you really want to really, uh, maybe be a CEO one day or, or, or just have a larger role, now you really never stay in the leadership part of your job, not just the management part of your job. And, you know, of course at the time I didn't really want to hear it, but I, you know, he said, let's go, you know, think about it for a week or two and let's get together again. And I did, I, I think I got back to him within a couple of days. And once I got over my ego and got over myself, I, I really, I started realizing, you know, he was right. And I really did need to understand what leadership was for me. And that really started my journey, James, in terms of understanding leadership for me and um, really investing in, in that as a profession, as a skill, as a knowledge. Um, and uh, fast forward, I did become a CEO of a global consulting firm uh, a year and a half later. And then 15 years ago, I started my own company. And um, and then, uh, as you mentioned, two years ago, I wrote a book. So um, that's, 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 that's my story, how I got into this uh, and how I started focusing on leadership. It's incredible. And I want to chat a bit about, you mentioned, you know, your, your thoughts around leadership. What do you believe about leadership? When you hear leadership, what are the first things that come to mind for you? Uh, I think it's a few things. I think, I think, and it's in, you know, and interestingly, the same characteristics haven't maybe changed in 30 plus years, but leadership is so much more complicated today for a lot of reasons, right? Social media, the pace of change, consumers and how they purchase the globalization of economies and markets and consumers um, and employees, um, you know, virtual hybrid workforce. And, you know, we can go on and on. Um, so it's so much more complex than it used to be. Multiple generations in the workforce. When I think about leadership, you know, I always think about uh, several things, inspiration, motivation, vision, um, and, 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 and basically developing others. Um, I think the biggest shift when you move into management or leadership uh, essentially is, uh, and, I met, and I reference this in my book as well, is, you know, you grew up in your life, James, where this, you're the center of your own universe. And for those of us who have gotten married or with a significant other or have children, we know that, you know, the shift occurs that you, know, you share that uh, center with another person. And then if you have children, all of a sudden your world flips upside down and your children are now the center of your universe. You know, managing and leading is, especially lead, the leading part of your job is kind of similar. You know, really throughout your career, you're the center of your own universe. Um, and it's all about you and visibility and getting results and progressing your career and advancing and, you know, getting, get, you know, getting more money and all those things that you're trying to achieve. But when you move into leadership, it's really not now about your people. It's no longer about you. And, and I think to me, that's probably the best way I can describe what leadership is. Mm, that's beautiful. And for the leader out there who is very process driven and not doesn't is not people oriented, for, for the leader who doesn't get amongst the troops, who doesn't roll up the sleeves, who sits in the corner office, what advice would you have to them in this day and age where they're, you know, people have options, people are using their feet and they're walking and there's the great resignation. What advice would you have to that leader who's not engaging with their people? Yeah, it, you know, I guess the good news, it's rare that happens. <laughs> um, and I you know, and I know we use the word managing, leading interchangeably, but they're really so distinctly different, right? Managing is really about the day-to-day, right? It's about the optional part of your of your job as a manager, managing results, people, process, getting things done. 
the leadership, as I mentioned earlier, is really about the inspiration, the vision, the communication, the mentorship, the guidance, um, the facilitation of dialogue, the developing of people, the developing of teams, um, the recalibration of, of direction and strategy when needed. Um, it, it's about uh, creating purpose and motivation and, and engagement of your people. So when you think about those descriptors, you can't do those things in a corner office. You can't you can't really accomplish the people part of your job. And leadership is all about people. And so I, I get it. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of managers there is they say, well, I'm not, I'm not the extrovert. I'm not the people person. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to be. Uh, I'm not the biggest extrovert. I'm kind of like middle of the road. Um, and yeah, so maybe you're not going to be as gregarious and as warm and naturally uh, as, as connecting as, as a highly extroverted person and gregarious person. But there are so many leaders out there that are so effective, being authentic, being who they are, but still finding a way to build relationships, establish trust, and, and connecting with your people. And if you want to retain top talent or any talent right now, for that matter, you've got to create the right work environment. And it's all about relationships. It's all about establishing trust. If the trust and, and relationships are not there, James, um, you're, you're not going to have effective team, a focused team, a high-performing team, an engaged team, and then, and then and retaining your people. So for all those corner office executives and leaders, which I'm sure they're up to their eyeballs with a lot of other responsibilities, they have to take a step back and say, where am I spending time? And, I, and what part of my job am I spending around, around the people part of my job, the strategy part of my job, the vision part of my job, the, 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 the building relationships and establishing trust with my people part of my job? Because that's critical, especially in the, in the environment that we're in right now and have been the last two years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when we, we look at what you were doing with the rise of the agile leader, what, what are some of the key themes that you were passionate about sharing in there to help the leader, the modern day leader, traverse all the challenges that have been thrown at them? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a lot of different themes. I think I've got 23 chapters in the book. Um, uh, it, it's not a 400 page book, so I don't want to scare anybody off. It's like a 200 plus page book. So it's really pretty straightforward reading. But what I really wanted to do is provide a roadmap to how to get to the next level for any leader, no matter where you are in your career, no matter what industry you're in or what part of the world you live in, is try to provide some very practical tools and knowledge and strategies and techniques to help you sort of that throughout the whole, you know, sort of, uh, if you want to call holistic viewpoint of how to be an effective leader, whether you're just starting out, you're mid-level, or you're a senior executive C-level, and you're, and you're trying to kind of get to that next level of effectiveness. So that, that's kind of the message of the book. The whole concept of being an agile leader, and, and I use the word agile, the verb, not agile scrum methodology, which a lot of people know about, that comes out of high technology that really came out of the software development space 30 years ago. So agile, in, in, in my book, is really about the verb. And it's really... and, and and the, and, the, and the reason you thought the, the definition of being agile, it is about not just flexibility, it's about being nimble, it's about being able to pivot. And in the world we live in today, we're balancing so many responsibilities uh, with customers, the marketplace, you know, the, the instability of where things are going is, is so drastic and changes so often. Um, by the time you release a product, and I'm talking about any product, no matter what the product may be, I mean, you've already got to be working on your next generation of products and solutions. 
because you know that the consumer is already going to want something new and different, you know, not not far down the road. So as a leader, how that really impacts as a leader, we really need to understand how, how, what, one of the big themes is where do we spend our time? One of the biggest issues today, um, and COVID just by the way, accelerated this, is that most leaders are not spending time where they need to. They're too focused on the day-to-day. They're not empowering their teams. They're not giving their teams enough decision-making authority, enough, enough ownership, enough independence. And they're not, they're not externally focused enough. When I say externally focused, they're not spending enough time with customers. They're not spending enough time looking at the market, looking at the future, looking at their competition, just trying to understand the landscape. And they're not spending enough time uh, on self-reflection in terms of being strategic and, and thinking about themselves as a leader. You know, so we often talk about leadership, James, is like this, you know, this thing that we do when we had people that work for us, right? But often, and yes, people go through management training programs, leadership development programs, but, but people don't realize that leadership is a craft, it's a skill, it's, a, it's no different than any other expertise that you may have, no matter what role or background that you may have. And if you don't dedicate yourself to enhancing and developing your leadership capability and skills and knowledge throughout your career, you're not going to stay on top of being effective as a leader. And that's one of my biggest messages in the book as well. That's beautiful. And what, why, do you, why do you think leaders are not focusing their time where they should be focusing? And what is it that's stopping them from doing that? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, one, they, they've just, one, one, you know, a lot of leaders that just have too much on their plate. And a lot of leaders, especially as they advance in their career, they're used to operating at one level. And we all know the cliche, right? It's kind of like what got you where you are today is not what's going to get you tomorrow. But it's so hard to change that, right? We all operate at this sort of success formula, whether it's sort of subconsciously or consciously, right? We created this formula for success that's gotten to us to where we are in our career, not just an individual contributor, but often as a manager up to even maybe mid-level management. But if you don't start shifting, you know, what you do and how you do what you do in your career, you're not, you're not going to be able to continue to be successful. And the biggest theme of this is where a manager spends their time. Most managers are too hands-on, what I said earlier. They're not shifting where they spend their time. You know, I, I give an exercise, and it's a very simple exercise to most executives that I work with. And one of the exercises I give is very simple. I want, I want people to print out their calendar uh, over the last two or three months. And there's not an executive that looks at me and says, uh, come on, Chuck, I mean, that's you know, I know where I spend my time. I go, do me a favor, print it out. And then, because your, your calendar is your calendar. Your calendar does not lie. And sure, maybe there is going to be an exceptional, un, you know, non-typical week in there. But in general, the last two or three months are going to be pretty typical. Um, and whatever typical is now, right? Because the world's changing so quickly every day. Um, but, and then what I want you to do is categorize your time into buckets, like, you know, day-to-day, externally focused with clients or in the marketplace, um, you know, whatever the categories are. And there's usually four or five. Some people create six, seven. It doesn't really make a difference. Then start adding up kind of where you spend your time. In in 15 years, even going back throughout my career over 30 years, I've never seen an executive or a leader of any level come back and say, I'm not surprised. You know, most people come back and say, well, I'm shocked. I really thought I was spending a high percentage of my time, you know, being strategic or doing the things that are really going to drive the future of our business. 
by the way, including developing relationships with my key people, not just people who work for me, but across the company, in the marketplace with customers. Um, and, and that's where that's where the, the reality hits hits. It's it's you're not spending time where you need to. And so even though it's a simple exercise, that's really one of the biggest issues today is that executives are so caught up in the day-to-day, trying to stay on top of everything. They want to know where, where, where everything, you know, what's happening everywhere. They want to stay to- on top of all aspects of their business. And the reality is it's impossible. You've got to trust your people. And if you don't, if you don't trust your people, then you got to make a decision. You're either going to trust them, hold them accountable, or I need to get a person I can trust. And that's one of the bigger issues today is that leaders are just too involved in the day-to-day. They're not trusting their people. They're not creating the right type of organization so they can actually delegate effectively and, and be at the level they need to be uh, for their organizations. Um, so that, that to still continues to be the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see it worldwide, no matter where, where you're working here in New Zealand and Australia, certainly see the same challenges. So what's the first step? What's the first step for a leader who wants to make a difference, who wants to start spending their time where it really matters? What could they be doing to start moving that direction? Yeah, well, I, I would definitely suggest that exercise because people will be surprised. And then when you look at your calendar, you have to start where, with, okay, what, what, what can I change? What can I change in my, in my schedule? Where can I start delegating? What, what meetings do I not need to be at? Most most executives, most most of us, period, <laughs> we, we're a meeting to meeting mode, right? Most of it's on Zoom or or on on Teams or whatever the the technology is. We're on video calls almost all day long, and that's one of the issues. There's no time to do a check in with a client. There's no time to do a check in with one of your employees or maybe a key partner or a peer or a, another member of the executive team, depending on what level you're at. So you have to start changing where you spend your time. Look at your calendar. What, what meetings do you start? Because the mistake a lot, a lot of people make, James, is they just start adding hours to their week. You know, and then the next thing they know is, why am I exhausted and I don't do anything? My family's not seeing me. My friends are not seeing me. Because the problem is you just added those hours versus changing where you spend your time. So not to say that you can't be in touch with some of the day-to-day, but you have to start thinking about, what do I get off my calendar? Where do I start delegating? What do I what do I do not to be involved in? And then there's decision making. A lot of leaders are involved in decisions they don't need involved in, James. So you got to start with where am I spending my time? Use the calendar exercise. It's the most practical, accurate exercise out there. And then start changing it by looking at your, your future week or weeks to say, where do I start shifting where, do I, where I spend my time? And how do I make sure that I'm adding to my calendar? time where I need to be. A lot of people, for example, say, James, well, you know, I, I know I need time to, to think and time to reflect and I, I don't do it. I'll just do it, you know, after hours or before hours. Well, that, that doesn't happen. I mean, because you got to spend time with yourself and whether it's exercise or meditation or going for a walk or whatever, spending time with your family and your friends, that's your time. Create time during your day and your week to be able to do that. And most, there's not an executive out there or a leader out there, James, that doesn't struggle with this. So start with the, start with the calendar, start making slow changes, incremental changes. It's really hard to just rip the Band-Aid off completely when it comes to this, but you can start changing. And there's also another aspect of this we forget about. There's a behavioral conditioning that's happened. When you're spending your time in a very hands-on way, involving in meetings, involving in decisions that maybe you don't need to be involved in, what ends up happening 
is your people around you are conditioned to go to you for things that, frankly, they don't need to go to you for. So it's going to take time to change their behavior. And you have to recalibrate your expectations and your conversations. And often, I've had executives and leaders literally tell um, in, in, a, in a sort of collaborative way, um, yes, this is how I'm going to really change how we work together. Sometimes you actually need to have those conversations because people are sort of conditioned to work with you a certain way when you're too involved. So those are the steps I would I would suggest starting with. Good advice. Really good advice. I recently spoke with uh, an amazing lady who was the EA to Steve Jobs. And we talked about his day-to-day and what his calendar looked like. And um, she was incredible. And she said, look, one of my roles was to make sure that he had, you know, massage booked in a personal training session several days a week, that he had time for meditation, that he had time to leave and go and watch the baseball game with his children. So she was really instrumental in managing his time. So from your experience, how important and valuable is a great EA? It's funny you say that because I actually mentioned this in my book. Um, I, you know, in, in the, in the one chapter I'm talking about where you spend your time, especially if you're at the level where you need to have an EA, an executive assistant or administrator to help you out or, uh, a chief of staff, depending on the level of responsibilities this person have, every organization now has a little bit of a nuance to this. But it, to get to good to great, if you know if you know the book itself, but to be to go, to go from good to great as a leader, often is about how good your EA is. And um, if you don't have a person that's managing your account effectively, that's screening out calls, that's screening out meetings, that's rerouting people who are trying to get to you. Um, and it's hard to find one, but often it has to do about, are you managing expectations? Are you being clear about how you want to work together? And that takes a lot of communication, especially early on, to really kind of feel each other out and, and for an EA to get comfortable with uh, a leader's style, their their calendar, their, their, their role, their organization, the culture, the nuances of kind of day to day. That doesn't happen very quickly. So it takes time to do that, James. But it's critical, um, especially if you if you have a large, complex organization and a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, it's really critical to have a really, really good EA. It, it makes a huge difference in, in one's success and where you spend your time. Mm. And one thing I hear a lot of clients talking about, you know, real high performing leaders and CEOs is email. And the email takes up sometimes two to yep. three hours of their day. And so what advice do you have to that leader who's stuck in the email issue and always in email two to three hours a day? What's, what are some processes you've seen work really well to help them get out of that and into the, into the business? Yeah, um, again, it's a combination of having a good EA because very often an EA is going to respond to most of those emails, believe it or not. Um, I'm not sure the uh, Steve Jobs uh, EA mentioned that, but uh, a good a good executive assistant or administrator is actually going to respond to the majority of those emails. And, and again, going back to my comment earlier about reconditioning people around you, those emails start to get reduced when when people realize, you know, these are the parameters where you come to me with or where you don't come to me with. And it's not about limiting communication or limiting transparency, not wanting to be connected to people. It's rec- it's actually really getting people to use email the correct way. Um, which is a, it's, it's an epidemic around the world, right? We're all, we're all email communication crazy on some level. 
And now it's no longer even email. Now it's text messaging or instant messaging, depending on the, the technology and platform you're using. So again, I would say it's about having a good EA, especially if you're very senior. For those of us who don't have an EA, then I think it's really going back to um, when you're getting emails that you feel you shouldn't be getting, how do you nicely and politely say, you know, here's how we should be communicating with each other. So, um, you know, again, most executives are going to do uh, emails during, during uh, you know, off hours or, you know, at the beginning or the end of their day. Um, it's hard to do it during the day when you're, when you're very, very busy. But part of it, again, is, is really establishing what I call communication parameters and expectations. So that way you're not spending all day or 200 emails a day. Um, and if you can have someone screen those and respond on your behalf. That's a great, great way to approach it. And I'm just thinking a little bit about the modern environment, like through COVID and post COVID, virtual teams and hybrid teams have become a, a real thing for a lot of companies. And there's challenges that come with yeah. managing those. Do you have any advice around how we can manage and get the best out of teams that are virtual or hybrid? Yeah, it's been a big focus, no surprise, a big focus for everybody and us as a firm. We, we've done a lot of work on how to, as managers and leaders, how to manage a virtual and hybrid workforce. Um, and it, it's there's no one simple answer. Um, someone is, is understanding what's the makeup of my people, right? I mean, there's some really great uh, people analytics out there to kind of understand the strengths, uh, sort of the motivation and drives of people. We, we use a tool called the Predictive Index or PI which we happen also to be a, a certified partner firm and we use it as a firm strategically with our clients. But what's great about tools like this is I once you kind of understand a per- personality, motivation, drive, who they are uh, behaviorally, it also makes you understand how do I need to interact with this person? A big part of being effective as a leader is being situationally effective. Situationally effective is the meeting. It's the person, right? Because we, we just can't interact with people the same way. Some people... Uh, we need to be, uh, you know, frankly, uh, somewhat subdued when it comes to how we interact. For some people, we can be very assertive. We need to be so kind of understanding personality and drive is really, really critical. Um, but when it comes to hybrid and virtual, the biggest challenge there's several. One is that very often managers don't understand their own sort of subconscious biases when it comes to managing people virtually. What do I mean by that? Well. You know, often we have a strong opinion or maybe not even a strong opinion, but we have a view about whether we want people in front of us or not. And when a person is not in office and we kind of have an opinion about that, often there are people that don't get those special projects or they're the people that are included in in some meetings um, because they're virtual. So we have to be careful as managers and frankly, any employee of realizing it's often we sometimes have some biases around people that are in the office or not in the office. We have to be careful about those biases. And are we being inclusive enough? Are we being consistent enough? Are we being fair enough about how we include people and what our expectations are? The other issue often is when some managers, if they don't see the work happening, they're skeptical. (laughs) They're like, well, how do I know that person's working? How do I know that person's being productive? Now, all the research says that people work virtually actually happen to be more productive um, and a higher performing um, because you know, they're actually probably working too much. They don't take enough time off. So not even getting to that yet, there's all kinds of challenges, which at this point, after two years now, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of executives and a lot of leaders are already aware of a lot of organizations, which are some of the challenges of burnout and mental health 
of people who are working virtually. But going back to the manager part of this, so those those are really two major issues. The other issue is, as we mentioned earlier, we're often running from one meeting to another. So we're not creating enough time to even just, you know, take a breath, you know, go stand up, go for a quick walk, stretch, grab something to eat. Um, so we're, we're kind of burning ourselves out, even as managers and leaders, because we're, we're constantly scheduling or participating in meetings. So, so as a leader, we have to take ownership and say, as an organization to our peers, to the collective organization, how do we start scheduling meetings with at least 10, 15 minutes between meetings so people have a chance to gather themselves, recalibrate, prepare, debrief, whatever it may be. Uh, another issue is as managers and leaders, we don't spend enough time having what I call ad hoc conversation. You know, when we're all in the office, we can hang out at the water cooler or we can get together for a quick cup of coffee in the hallway or in the cafeteria or whatever, whatever work environment you're in. You know, you're, or we can just walk into someone's office and say, hey, do you have a second? I'd like to chat with you. Um, so we all we have all these ad hoc opportunities throughout the day that when you're virtual, even hybrid, you just don't have. So as a manager, we have to make sure, and it sounds terrible to say this, but you got to schedule those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you, what are you doing to connect with people without an agenda? Just to check in, how are you doing? Uh, when's the last time we, as a manager, we said, "Hey, I really appreciate you know you. I appreciate all your effort, your hard work." Um, you know, all the research shows that the reasons people are leaving jobs is not mental health, it's not burnout, um, it's that they're not feeling valued, they're not feeling appreciated by their managers. Why? Because managers are so busy doing their day-to-day, and in these meetings, they're not building relationships enough, they're not establishing trust, they're not doing a check-in and 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 and, and seeing how that person is doing as a person. And, and that's probably the biggest change the last two years, James. I'm sorry, I'm going off on this a little bit, but this is great. Uh, and I could go, I could talk about this for a long time. Uh, it's a big topic, but the, the other thing I'll quickly say: the biggest change uh, in the last two years, honestly, is that you know, is the line that used to never be crossed, which is as as companies, as organizations, as managers, really talking about people, what's going on in their lives. That used to be kind of a taboo, right? Oh, we can't cross that line. You know, it's not really professional. It's not really our business. That line's crossed. Um, we as organizations and as leaders and executives now have a responsibility to make sure that our people are doing okay as people. How, how's your family? How, how's your family through, through COVID? How are they doing working virtually or working hybrid? How are you balancing you know, everything? And um, you know, th- these conversations now are critical. And it goes back to what I said earlier. How do we connect? How do we establish trust? How do we build relationships how do we make sure we care about our people? And the last thing I'll say, celebrations. Again, it's harder because it's virtual, but how are we celebrating? Um, and it doesn't always have to be a major accomplishment, but it's like, hey, that was a great moment. That was a great day. That was a great uh, advancement of a project or maybe even a great win. But are we, are we recognizing and celebrating our people? Um, and that's what people need right now more than ever. And, and that's, that's if anything, I'd be recommending to managers in a hybrid or, or virtual wor- world right now, it's those things. Brilliant. Really great advice. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You can see that, um, you know, people do want to feel heard. They want to feel valued. They want to feel loved. And they also want to feel that uh, the leader has a trajectory that they can go down to grow and, and to improve and to, to move forward. So 
for let's say a leader is wanting to connect more, but the leader doesn't have maybe the emotional intelligence uh, that he or she needs uh, to develop the deep connections. What can that leader be doing to heighten their self-awareness and start having these conversations and building this connection with their team? Yeah, I mean, self-awareness is critical. You know, if you if you want to be effective as a manager and as and, and be be an effective leader, you need to understand yourself first. You need to understand who you are, what motivates and drives you, what happens to you under pressure and stress, what's your natural communication style, what's your natural uh, decision-making style, how do you naturally deal with conflict? So let me just use conflict for for an example here. Because again, talk about another major epidemic, corporate, uh, the corporate world we live in today. You know, you know, we know about social media. We know about all the challenges, of whether it's war or whether it's what's going on here in the U.S. And it comes to some of the social issues. But the 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 issue of you know whether you want to call it cancel culture or everything else that's been going on, the failure to be able to debate and discuss and have a disagreement, uh, it was becoming a problem five years ago, COVID just made it even worse. So, you know, we can't, you cannot have an effective work relationship or an effective relationship if you can't, or if you're not willing to put the issues on the table and discuss them. So a big part of emotional intelligence is, is yes, is self-awareness, understanding your, your style and your strengths, what happens to under pressure and stress, but it's also to be able to ha- understand how to have healthy conflict. And we need to be able to have those discussions. We need to be able to draw people out where they're comfortable. So I'm sure you've heard of the concept of psychological safety. So we have to create a work environment where people feel not only will they be heard, but they can disagree. They can make a mistake. They can fail. So we have to realize that failure is one of the key elements of success. If we don't make mistakes and fail, we don't learn. We don't grow. And and sometimes we become so focused on on, on perfectionism and, and getting it done right, because we're moving so quickly, there's so much pressure to get it right. But we have to also understand what success means when it comes to people individually and collectively. So creating an environment where people can challenge the status quo, um, they can say, why are we doing it this way? Or why aren't we doing it this way? Um, and fail and make mistakes. So creating that work environment, being able to engage in healthy conflict versus unhealthy conflict are so critical and inclusive of, of of emotional intelligence, but those the, the framework emotional intelligence is all about self awareness, but it's also about the awareness of others. James, you have mm-hmm. to understand that person's makeup, and you have to be able to navigate your style to be effective in connecting with that person and influencing that person and in building a relationship with that person. Great stuff. And what do you think is the the cost? to the leader who refuses to adapt, who refuses to build awareness about others and themselves? What's the cost to them and their company? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but those leaders start to stick out very, very quickly. And uh, the scrutiny upon them becomes very heavy. And, you know, a lot of organizations, best practice today is that, you know, people are getting feedback from not only above, but from below and from their peers. Um, through poll surveys, through 360 assessments. So the leader is not able to adapt to the new world environment and what those expectations are from, from the people around them is going to find them in a hot seat very, very quickly or, or not in a leadership role. So my, my advice to anyone out there, you know, and there's, there's a fine line that said, look, I, I, I get the person or leader that's out there that says, I want to be me. I want to be authentic. I want to be true to myself. 
you know what, James, I support that myself. However, you know, part of that secret sauce that I talk about in my book about being a leader is can you adapt to your environment? You know, can you can you be situational? That's not compromising your values. That's not compromising your authenticity. It's understanding how to be effective with your audience, how to motivate, how to inspire, how to influence, how to partner, how to collaborate, how to build relationships, how to establish trust. Because if we don't, as leaders, learn how to adapt, we're not going to be effective. Um, because we can't, we cannot naturally connect with everybody. And, and look, trust me, I know leaders out there that don't adapt and, and their life cycle is getting shorter and shorter as a leader. So my message to anyone out there that's feeling a little defensive right now with this discussion, I feel your pain. I understand it. But you have an opportunity, which is an opportunity to let go of maybe some of those insecurities or defense mechanisms of why you want to stay kind of where you are and recognize the brave new world out there that you can learn and embrace and actually, frankly, still be authentic more than ever and be effective and more effective. That's really powerful. And you mentioned situational. So I'd love to just chat about that for a second. So for the listener that is listening right now, what do you think around situational leadership? When you when you talk about a great situational leader, what would that leader be doing? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll use a I'll use a the, the example. I was mentioning earlier about you know conflict, right? So so naturally, there's some people that engage conflict uh, and think it's, it's sort of healthy debate, right? You know, you know, think about the two alpha personalities that are you know blasting each other with their own opinions. The two of them feel it's a very natural thing that's occurring. Now there are people out there that are naturally don't like conflict. They're very conflict adverse. Um, we actually sometimes call people like that passive aggressive versus the other extreme, which is too aggressive, right? And then there's everybody in between. So that is an example is, do, do we understand our audience? Do we understand that there are going to be some people, depending on their personality and style and their comfort level, that run away from conflict? And conflict to them simply could be disagreeing or not wanting to voice a differing opinion. So it may not even be a disagreement. Uh, they may not want to simply disagree with what the discussion that's occurring in a room. And what ends up happening is that person leaves a meeting, don't, doesn't say anything in the meeting, and they start telling all their colleagues after the meeting how much they disagree, right? And we, we call that passive aggressive behavior, right? So, um, so that's the challenge. The challenge is, and pick your characteristic behaviorally, is understanding what happens if we don't adjust our style and we encourage people when you know that's who they are to speak up. And we have to create an environment where they're going to be comfortable doing that. And sometimes they're not going to be comfortable in a group setting. So sometimes we have to have that conversation with them individually. That's what I mean by situational, is understanding the makeup of our people so we can draw them out. Remember, as a leader, our job is to optimize our people, right? How do we create an optimal environment where people can really feel comfortable being themselves? That's part of our job as leaders is really bringing out the best of our people, creating a work environment where they can be at their optimal best. Mm-hmm. And often it is understanding what motivates and drives them and what are some of the challenges and barriers to their success based upon their comfort level. Now, part of our job is getting them to be more situationally effective as well. But that's a good example of what I mean when I say being situational. Thank you. That's great. And for the leader that right now is struggling to recruit really good talent and are struggling to retain really good talent because I know there's many leaders in that position right now. What do you have to say for them right now? 
Boy, that's a big topic right there, James. How, how much time do we have left? Just kidding. Uh, Three days. Uh, I'm not really kidding. So uh, another area that I've been spending a lot of my time over the last uh, year, especially to no surprise, is culture, right? And, and culture is not a new concept. We know we know culture predominantly because of, of you know, uh, country cultures and languages and history and trends and, and traditions. But culture in, in organizations and corporations also exists. And often there is an over, what I call it overlaying culture. And then there are subcultures, meaning, you know, micro ecosystems in every organization, depending on the department, depending on the location. So when you think about recruiting and how I'm tying in recruiting, retaining talent is you have that your culture is your brand. Your culture ultimately is why do you want to work here? Why do you want to stay here? How do we, how are you going to get treated? What are your opportunities to learn, to grow? But what does this company value? Right. So ultimately, your culture is essentially starts with your strategy, right? Like essentially, why do you exist as a business? What what is what is your purpose? What do you what do you what is your aspired state of what your services and goods and products you're trying to provide in the marketplace? Once you've sort of defined or redefined what is. For a lot of organizations and companies, they've been redefining that the last two years because of obviously all the changes in the marketplace. But you got to start there. And that ultimately drives your strategy and then your mission. Now, from that is your brand. Your brand is a reflection of your values. What, do you, what is your values? And you think about that brand, right? Think of, um, think of any organization out there, especially really well-known organizations. When you think of Disney, we, we ultimately think of Disney because of the experience they provide to their parks and, and to their movies and their characters, right? There's an experience there. And that's that's their, that's their purpose. That's also their strategy and their mission, right? From there, they create values. And their values are both an external value to their, to their customers, but also an internal value. So any organization, no matter what your business is, has an opportunity to say how we demonstrated a brand for our consumers, whoever they may be, and how do we internalize that brand? So that that brand has to be aligned externally and internally. And so you, by doing that, as you create your values that are your external brand, but then how do you cascade that internally? How you do that is by taking those values and essentially defining them into very specific behaviors. Those behaviors should be observable. Those behaviors should be measurable. Those behaviors then get cascaded to every employee so they understand that, yes, your expectation of the employee here is based upon our brand, our, our vision, our, our, our purpose, but also our values, which are reflected in our behaviors. And that should become part of the living mantra of every organization. And that ultimately becomes your culture. That culture gets reinforced by all your HR systems and processes, how you recognize and reward, how you hire how you promote and advance people. Um, so all those HR systems and, and processes have to reinforce those behaviors and those values of organization. And, and for some organizations, they have to really think about what do we really mean by our values? You know, we all know the story. A lot of companies make a big deal about their values. They have these big billboards and postcards printed out. It's on their website. It's, it's in every conference room. And now on the intranet or extranet, um, but the problem is they're not living them because there's no accountability. There's no way enforcing, and there's no way of people you know, walking the talk. 
And especially as leaders, we don't demonstrate those values, those behaviors every day. The rest of the organization is going to say these, these mean nothing. And mm-hmm. it essentially means that you don't really have a culture. So, so your culture, your brand, everything I just talked about, those are the key drivers of your retention um, and your recruiting strategy. Because if you've got a strong, healthy culture where, where people feel engaged, uh, they feel valued, um, they understand what those values and those behaviors are, and they're and they're being lived and they're reinforced and and they're being supported with all the systems and tools and processes of your organization. That's why people are going to want to come work for you, and that's why people are going to want to stay there. Mm, that makes sense. And going from a toxic culture to a high performance culture, what do you see as being the key differences? So, if somebody was listening right now, going, "Huh." What's my culture actually like in the place that I lead or that I work? How would they know that it's toxic versus high performance? And of course, there's going to be lots of in between as well. But what would the the key differentiators be? If you walk into an organization, you're like, whoa, this is high performing versus, oh, my goodness, this is toxic. For me, it all comes down to leadership. You know, how strong are your leaders? Has there been an investment in the development of your managers to be effective at managing and effective at leading. And if your managers are not equipped with knowledge and skills and abilities, and they're not held accountable to be effective as managers and leaders and demonstrate those values and behaviors, it's really hard expected for the rest of the organization. That's the thing you'll immediately notice is that you're going to see really strong management and leadership in the organization. There's clarity on purpose there's clarity on vision, where we are, where we're going. People understand their roles, responsibilities, and how that connects to the vision and purpose of the organization. They understand this, the macro strategy, but they also understand the micro strategy. Communication is transparent. It's open. It's clear. Um, decision-making is happening at all the right levels. Uh, you know, organization, people are empowered. Or, you know, Teams are empowered. People are spending as leaders where they, they should be spending their time at. At the right at the right levels, as we talked about earlier, these are all the characteristics of a healthy organization, of a healthy culture. So it, it all starts at leadership. One of the biggest challenges for any organization is what do you do with a top performer, a high performer, a high expert um, that that's not demonstrating those right values and those behaviors? Because if you don't address that, that's that's your first step to creating a toxic environment, right? Because people then recognize that those values, that brand are not being lived. And, and that's the inconsistency. When there's favoritism, when there's inconsistency uh, of behavior and people getting away with the wrong behaviors. Where have you seen this? So in, in your experience, where have you been working with a client or you've walked into a, a company and seen them an amazing, thriving, high-performance culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pull out, you know, companies, um, and you know, and I hate to say, in some of the bigger companies, often you see it depending on the who who's in charge, right? I mean, in big companies, you'll see more inconsistency because they're so big. You know, so in big companies, you have some divisions, departments that are they're bigger than half the companies in the world. Um, so, and, and and why? Because you see some strong leadership in some divisions and some departments, and not so strong leadership. So the challenge for bigger companies is ensuring that they're consistent in how they develop, but also hold accountable their leaders, all their leaders, because that's the key. How do you create consistency 
across your organization, especially big companies that have offices and people all around the world and have multiple, multiple divisions and businesses and business units. When I walk into a smaller or any company, going back to your question, I just want to make a distinction with bigger companies because you'll see much greater variance just because of pure size. But I do also work with startups and venture capital and family-owned companies. And where I see really, really healthy, uh, high-performing work environments, first thing that really stands out to me when that when that CEO and that executive team, uh, they care. They really care. And people say they care and they want to care. They don't demonstrate that in terms of how they treat people. You know, when you see high performing, people realize that the company doesn't care if I'm virtual or hybrid. They don't care. They, they care about what's going on with me and my family. And they're going to be flexible to support me. Um, they care in terms of, you know, how they support us not only in the last two years personally, but also professionally through development, through learning, through, um, you know, being on task forces, being on, you know, innovative teams. Um, A big aspect of high-performing companies is their focus on innovation and change. Some companies and organizations, it's, it's a, you know, don't bring up those words. (laughs) We don't talk about change here. We don't talk about innovation here, right? So, and I'm being a little dramatic in, in saying that, of course, but um, you know, some people, I'll give you an example. I have one CEO of a very, very well-known company, a company that we all know, a consumer products company that's one of the, 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 the biggest brands in the world. And this CEO did everything to try to create greater innovation, create innovation teams, spoke about innovation all the time, you know, created a new role to, to drive innovation for the whole company. But as much as he tried, the moment there was failure when a, when a new product was being released or it wasn't going as well as expected, instead of just tweaking or making some adjustments um, or you know, or recognizing people for their effort doing a great job, um, it was a very harsh and negative response. And going back to my comment about creating a, a safe work environment, um, if you don't celebrate people's effort, even if th- there was a failure, um, it's hard for people to try again. It just is. So you can't you can't be punitive and and slap people on the wrist or you know um, uh, uh, demote people if 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 if, if they fail. So to be to be innovative, you have to accept reasonable failure and mistakes. And so this is all tied back into your question: what what do I see when I see what are the characteristics of a high performing organizations? It's everything we just talked about with those additional characteristics as well. Beautiful. Chuck, I thank you for sharing that. And for the person that's listening right now that's is loving what they're hearing and they want to be that agile leader, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the rise of the agile leader. And, you know, can you make the shift is the question on the subtitle. And that's by Chuck Mallora. It's going to be in uh, the show notes. So please do go and grab a copy of that or um, could get it off Amazon or wherever your nearest bookstore is. And Chuck, before we finish up, I've got one last question for you. And that is, fast forward many years into the future, it's your last day. You've been told it is your last day here. And a young person that you love dearly in your life uh, asks you a question. And this is the last question that you can actually answer in your life. And that is, hey, Chuck, how can I go about leading my life with purpose? What would your answer be to them? Hmm. I think I think that's a question you have to 
ask yourself all the time because I think it changes depending on where you are in your life. Um, I guess that's the first thing I would say. As you probably already guessed, James, I'm not really a short per, short answer person. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> my challenges. That's a great question, though. I am. Um, I, I think I think a couple of things. I think I would say to that person: always be curious. Always ask why or why not or how or what. Always be curious. Always be willing to learn from others and from the world around you. Never stop learning. Um, always ask: am, am I living uh, the life of purpose that I always dreamed about? You know what? What's the vision you have for your life? Are you living that vision? I actually just posted a very brief. Uh, media post uh, just earlier today and yesterday about this is is you know what is your vision for you and the life that you want to live um, what what's your calling are you truly being honest with yourself are you truly being true to yourself go live that um, that would that would be what I how I respond to that. Mm. Beautiful advice. I love it. Well, Chuck, I just want to say a massive thank you for connecting. I know it won't be the last time that we connect. I'm excited for people to get that book in their hands and start to be that agile leader that the world needs in this post-COVID space. So thanks a million for connecting. Uh, My pleasure, James. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your great questions and uh, appreciate being here today. Thanks a million. Thanks for tuning in today and investing in your own personal leadership. Please hit that subscribe button and I'd love if you'd leave me a rating and review. I've got some amazing guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. And leaders, it's that time to get out there and lead your life on purpose.